nonsense? Hi, Hi. I got your note. WB8s and all. I, I put it in my pocket and didn't read it right away because I, light was changing and I was, had to get my shots. Light was changing. Yeah, but I do accept your invitation. It'll have to be a little later, though. Um, I was going to go over to the Hollowell Bridge and do some shooting over there. After nine, how about that? Yes. Yes, get your work done. That's what's important. I'll make something nice. We can warm up when you get here. You know, it's just a thought. Maybe you'd like to come along with me. Yes, I would like that, but I, I'll drive my pickup and meet you there. All right? All right. What time? Uh, okay, okay. Great, okay. Bye. Welcome back to Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast, the podcast where we hit the road to check out the landmarks of Amblin' Entertainment, forging connections amid brief encounters and maybe even falling in love along the way. I am one half of your host, Andy Godian, and a very happy Christmas to you all. (laughs) I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn, and a happy new year to you all. And today we are very happy to welcome Rob Yeoman, production manager, whose recent credits include Ali and Ava, Railroad Children, and the Sky Sitcom Funny Woman, as well as co-host of Cine Mortuary Podcast, a fortnightly digest of horror reboots, remakes, sequels, prequels, and squeakquels. Welcome to Ramblin' Rob. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, Andrew, that is... An absolutely sensational intro. Congratulations. <laughs> that is so much more professional than we are. I want to uh, just circle back to Squeakwells. Have you covered the Alvin and the Chipmunks uh, franchise on your podcast? Well, Josh, uh, we're kind of building up to that for um, maybe a grand crescendo, maybe a, a, a milestone episode or a final episode. You know, I think you, yeah. you, you can't just throw away the Chipmunks on a you know an episode. So two, three, seven, or something random. It has sure. to, yeah, it has to um, be suitably placed um, as a as the masterpiece. <laughs> it is. <laughs> You're a brave man, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> it truly is horrific as well. So it fits the mold of the. <laughs> yes. Well, we do. Yeah, we occasionally like to mix it up um, and and do the odd good sequel or remake because it does get a mm-hmm. little painful when you're you know delving into the howling seven every two weeks you need a little bit of levity in your life sometimes (laughs) Uh, so yeah what is the kind of main drive of that uh that podcast what was the kind of inspiration behind you and your uh, you and your co-host putting it together 
it's basically an attempt from three friends who've known each other a very long time to um, one-up each other in terms of having <laughs> to watch terrible film after terrible film. Um, we've tried to sort it's, it's a bit of a sort of satirical kind of with love look at um, some of mm-hmm. the tat that is produced within the horror genre. Um, we, we, and there's m- many of it. <laughs> there's, there's many of it, yeah. We have, a, we have a bit of a unique metric. We have um, two measurements. So we've got the shit scale, if you will, if I'm allowed to swear. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, yes, yes. Very of course, good, please. Very good. <laughs> I know they went for the poo scale, but it's quite the same. <laughs> um, and the popcorn scale, which is actual enjoyment. So the aim of mm. the game is to try and get as high a score in each metric as you can, um, which is proving significantly more difficult than uh, <laughs> than initially thought, I'll be honest, chaps. We're, uh, I think we're in about 125 episodes in. And we've still yet Dang. to yet to achieve perfection. Wow! <laughs> What's come the closest so far of everything you've covered? What is the current uh, yardstick? I think the current yardstick it's it's a close run thing between um, Jason X and oh yes and Amityville Four, I think it is, which is one of the later installments that's mm-hmm. essentially about a haunted lamp. Um, which, you know, I wish yeah, I was making it adds up. to watch list. Yes, you know, I would, it comes recommended. It comes recommended. Yeah, there's a point with them. I think it's after the third one where they just start having like these straight to video spin-offs that are just about mm. various fairly mm-hmm. innocuous household items that become possessed. Just got, slap the Amityville name on it and we're good to go. It's exactly, it's exactly that. Yeah, yeah. There is an astounding amount of those. I, I briefly fell into a slight black hole about the Amityville franchise recently, and there, mm. there, there are <laughs> several thousand, it seems. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, when we started, we were like, well, we've maybe got a certain shelf life on this. There's only so many mm. crap sequels and remakes, right? And then we sort of started putting the list together, and we're like, oh, we may be doing this till we die. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, David so, Gordon Green's excavating all of your childhood uh, horror classics. Yes, well, childhood's yeah. the wrong word, actually. We'll keep it going. Bless him, he's, 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 he's trying, isn't he? <laughs> I th- actually, I think it was because um, you're always, I know you're a, car- a man of Carpenter. Yes. And uh, I always would check in with you on the, uh, the Halloween remakes, the Gordon Green <laughs> Halloween remakes throughout the years. And I think it was talking about kills that led us to. Uh, where we are right now. Yes. You on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. It is the natural uh, narrative arc, isn't it? Halloween kills <laughs> yeah. to uh, the subjects we're discussing today. <laughs> uh, before we get into the uh, the bridges of Madison County of it all, um, we do like to ask our guests what their kind of previous relationship with Ablin Entertainment are. So it sounds like, particularly like maybe horror films were quite formative for you, but how if any role did what sort of role did Amblin and Spielberg play in these kind of formative films for you as well? Yeah, it actually, it actually, my sort of appreciation of Amblin's output precedes really my, my horror film mm-hmm. love or indeed my film literacy. Um, it's very, it goes a long way back into my childhood around the time when I first discovered film and everybody's a fan of et and the first thing i remember about it is the logo right with the, with the kid on the bike and mm. um i thought that was cool when i was very small and then one of my all-time like legitimate 
unsarcastic, one of my favourite films of all time is another rambling film which we've not quite got to yet, which is the 1996 classic Twister. Um, oh, excellent. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. Which is, uh, which is, and that, like, you know, genuinely was, I think that and Independence Day <laughs> came out in the same year, and I, I think I saw them both at the cinema because they were PGs. And I think that's what, at a, a youngish age, I'll have been eight, kind of started my appreciation for cinema, big cinema, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's something that goes, you know, I'm, I'm not a, an affectionado particularly. I haven't I haven't done the great Lord's work that you chaps have done here and gone back through the entire back catalogue. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, you know, it's always, it's a bit like Thornton's chocolates, right? Like, you mm. see the Amblin logo and you think, it's, I'm not going to have a bad time here. I don't think I can ever remember seeing a particularly terrible Amblin film, but I'm sure I will be corrected on that. I'm sure there'll be <laughs> a number. We encountered a couple of couple of duds on the way, a couple of, uh, I don't know, coffee liqueurs on the way. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, extend yeah. the Thornton's metaphor. <laughs> and um, are you a man who, I mean, uh, this is a good film to talk about this. Are you a man who has uh, particularly emotional reactions to films? Do you often cry? Yes, yeah, I do. I always have been, and I'm very unashamed about that. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's um, what is the point of, of cinema if it's not to make you emote in one way or another? And, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, there is as much value in, in a film affecting you, you know, it, in the way that makes you cry as there is, you know, making you laugh. Or, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, it's a, in, in fact, maybe the most difficult emotion to achieve on screen so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely unashamedly and uh yeah i think it's a vital part of mm. of the love of cinema in my opinion that's good to hear man uh with with that in mind it's a question that we ask <laughs> all of our guests do you cry at et you did mention et just now yes i do now i must confess to having not seen it for a long time about 10 mm-hmm. 12 years but of course it always gets really? you Always gets you. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a funny one, ET actually. Um, in that, I've got a number of films that I consider to be precious to a degree that I don't want to mm. watch them too often and lose the mm. like worry about losing the stardust of of um, of watching them on repeat. And that that's one of them. But it is obviously a beautiful film. I can understand that. I can understand that. Yeah. Oh, that was a very sweet answer. That question. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can emote in Yorkshire as well. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh, I. <laughs> oh, I. <laughs> I I I am fascinated to get into um, why um, you um, requested this film in particular because, like, particularly going from your podcast, it it felt like I immediately kind of went, oh, oh interesting. Why has he gone for? The, this Eastwood weepy drama, but before we before we get into that, in case our listeners don't know what is going on at those on those bridges at, in Madison County, Joshua Glenn, will you please let them know. <laughs> well, first of all, I would say stop the podcast now and go and watch it. <laughs> yes, because it's, lo- it's lovely. Come back in hundred and thirty minutes. <laughs> hundred and thirty <laughs> easy we, breezy minutes. <laughs> okay. We open on siblings Michael and Carolyn Johnson, played by Victor Slezak and Annie Corley, respectively, arriving at the Iowa farmhouse of their recently deceased mother, Francesca, played by Meryl Streep, to settle her estate. 
As her wishes are read out, they are shocked to discover that she is requested to be cremated and have her ashes scattered from Rosemond-covered bridge, instead of being buried in the plot next to her late husband, Jip, played by Jim Hain, who, which has long been the ostensible plan. Michael is initially aghast at the idea, but upon discovering photos and letters and various trinkets in Francesca's safe deposit box, begins to realise there might have been more to their mother's life than they thought. The letters are from Robert Kincaid, played by Clint Eastwood, a National Geographic photographer who was sent to Madison County in 1965 to document the famous covered bridges. As Michael and Carolyn read through Robert's letters and Francesca's notebooks, we flash back to 30 years prior, as Robert and the kids are leaving to attend the state fair for the next four days. Francesca, visibly bored with her lot, is busying herself around the empty house when Robert pulls up asking for directions to said bridge. She says it'll be easier to show him the way and hops in the car with him. As they get talking along the way, there is an intense, instantaneous connection. They spend more and more time together, Francesca making up excuses to keep him around, even though she knows deep down inside that it's tantamount to emotional infidelity. After discussing the ethical considerations of the obvious attraction, the two eventually, and inevitably, give in to their desires and engage in a four-day love affair. All the while, though, they are both acutely aware that there is an expiry date on this relationship. Will Francesca be able to break it off and return to her dull life of domestic stability with her family, or will she risk it all for the whirlwind romance that Robert offers? And will he finally be able to photograph the Bridges of Madison County? <coughs> the Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> Lovely work, man, as always. <laughs> that was a sensational so is... piece of work, yeah. Josh. Well done. <laughs> uh, from, from, from the heart, it, it, flowed, it flowed freely, much like my tears. <laughs> now, for me personally, this was a film that I've never really thought about in kind of particularly the consideration of Clint Eastwood as a filmmaker. And I'd only ever, for whatever reason, the image of him standing in the rain is something that I've seen before. And mm. I can't really recall where I've seen that before. So I've never seen it before doing, uh, doing this podcast. So I, I am intrigued, Rob, is it a film that you have like a strong prior connection to, or is it, uh, does it, is there something particular about it that, um, really connects with you um from your past like or is yeah. it also quite a recent discovery it's it's not it's a it's a film i discovered in quite an unusual way i guess so some years ago god probably about 16 17 years ago as a nerd um i discovered <laughs> uh, a magazine about clint eastwood it's a, it was a i think it's every two weeks it was called the Clint Eastwood Collection, and it came with the movie of the week on DVD and a magazine oh, about it. I remember it. that. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, memory about yeah, it was that. a thing. Uh, they did it. I think they did like westerns, and they did various filmmakers. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, uh, I latched on to Clint Eastwood because at that age I wasn't really that familiar with his stuff, and and the first one was Dirty Harry. So I was like, great, classic Eastwood. And I thought, I'll collect them from there. And I discovered a number of fairly random Clint Eastwood films because of that subscription, one of which was mm. this. Um, <clears throat> and I think it caught me quite off guard the first time I watched it. And I think the thing I, I loved most about it, which I'm sure we'll get into more as we go, is it's got a sense of honesty about romance and romantic relationships that... I've not come across too much in cinema. You know, it's it, it really mm -hmm. gets across the 
the reality of romance in that love is it's complicated and you know it's not always it doesn't always transpire the in the way that we are conditioned to by perhaps you know romantic comedies and another aspect of it i found particularly interesting was that the core romantic relationship within the film was between two people who are a little bit older which is again mm. something that you know is not typical within the genre um so those are the things that sort of caught my attention really in the first instance mm. Had you seen it at all before, Josh, or been too familiar with it? No, I hadn't. I, I think it speaks to a certain prejudice that I have in my film watching, and, and that there's certain titles like this and Steel Magnolias and On Golden Pond and Fried Green Tomatoes as kind of um, 90s old people romance. Not, the, the wave of those kind of films came before <laughs> your, um, uh, Exotic Marigold Hotels and that kind of thing. It, they just seem very pedestrian and stodgy and, uh, uh, and I mean, unfairly for me to look at them yeah. in that way because as this bore out, it's not the case at all. But I, I had this image in my head of this being one of those stodgy, Oscar-reaching, weepy melodramas. Uh, so mm. I, I I didn't consciously avoid it, but I never really sought it out, and I I don't even think I realised until recently ish that it was a Clint Eastwood film. Yeah. Um, and it was one that I looked at in our filmography with slight trepidation because of my prejudice that I mentioned. <laughs> but then when you, because like we were messaging Robin and I asked yeah. if you wanted to come on the podcast, and you asked for this film because you said it was gorgeous, I was uh, that certainly piqued my interest and made me think oh my maybe there's more to this than yeah than my uh mm. my my prejudice will allow me to see yeah uh, but no i hadn't seen it before today in fact and i'm very very pleased that I did. yeah i think it's a film as well that kind of the 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 more you get sort of slow as i am towards my mid 30s mm-hmm. you start to you, you know a man in his 20s his view of romance in love is very different to when you've had a few years of life experience as well. And I think this is the kind of film that speaks to that. And I think it's almost, I think you're doing yourself a slight disservice, Josh, by, you know, it's not, um, I don't think it's a prejudice you have. I think it's just, uh, it's where you are in your life. And cinema, mm-hmm. you know, I think we, we constantly reflect on cinema that reflects where we are in our life at that time in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think there's a bit of that to it as well. Mm. What are your kind of, general impressions of maybe not so much Eastwood as the actor but Eastwood as the director because I or it's nuts kind of looking back over his <coughs> filmography particularly yeah. as director because it is so wildly varied and quite um yeah it's quite a, it's quite eccentric in a way because he does make these uh ch- he, yes he has the kind of expected genres that he works in but he does channel go down many different channels throughout it like even to this day Mm. Uh, so what are your kind of general impressions of him as a filmmaker? Is he someone you admire as a director? Yeah, I think there's, I, he's always been... I think Eastwood's always, in my eyes, been slightly out of time with his generation in that I've always seen him totally. as more of a... Yeah, like um, I was comparing his work to something more of like the Howard Hawks era where yeah. he's a, he's not he's not particularly altruistic and he's not in that vein of the 70s you know, guys like Carpenter, Cronenberg, Romero, of the generation that he, as a director, came up in. He kind of, he's much more, almost, he feels like he's much more comfortable in that old sort of 40s, 50s studio movie environment, which is, you know, that's not a knock in any way. I think we as as 
film appreciators sometimes get a little bit blinkered by modern film theory on autism and how that is you know the the holy grail um when you know it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a narrow view isn't it because all of those auteurs were influenced by studio filmmakers of the day um but yeah that's kind of always been my opinion on Eastwood he's a fascinating filmmaker for that reason I think he always feels slightly out of step Mm. but Mm. there's something comforting about that there is yeah i I do agree with you there is something of this sort of old hollywood studio system mindset in the way he shoots because he famously does one or at a push two takes per you know per setup which does speak to that slightly mercenary get in get out we've got to make 20 of these this week kind of attitude yeah um and i think as i've always i love clint i love him as a screen presence and i do i really respect him as a filmmaker i mean the guy's 92 and or just this year was it this year or last year the cry macho came out a film that he wrote directed that and was starred this year, that this year. <laughs> i think so I'm trying to remember now yeah <laughs> the guy's work ethic is astounding and uh yeah even though i've seen a, a drop in the ocean of his filmography it's, I, it's I do, just so like, big yeah it's, it's huge <laughs> uh, but I, I had always seen him as a guy who maybe was slightly dispassionate about the stuff he was making certainly when you when you hear Actors talking about being on his set, I think he's like, oh, well, you don't want to waste everybody's time. Just Why do you get on with everybody's it. Time? Yeah. <laughs> but I uh, was delighted to see in this just how much emotion he was able to mm. delve into. I, it's always nice when when someone that you are familiar with and that you do respect reveals depths that you weren't aware of. So I think this. I, I don't know if that one take attitude has been his attitude from the very start or if that's something that's crept up in later years, maybe, I don't know if you guys found that in your, in your research or anything, but I'd be curious to know if that was the case here, because Mm. there's a lot between them and in the silences and in the gestures that. Yeah. I think it's very patient. Yeah, exactly. I think, and I think as you're watching it, especially the, um, the scene that struck me most with this was the the first kitchen scene when after the initial drive she invites yeah. him in for an iced tea. The camera doesn't move really. Mm. It's kind of he's got his two or three positions and it feels to me like he's maybe got, you know, three cameras in there and he's just gone, let's just roll with it. And when when you're up, when you're working opposite Merrill Street, that's an easier easy thing to do. Um <laughs> but I think it's yeah, it's it's very genteelly paced and it's very, in a lot of ways, it's very uneastward. Um, and, yeah. and I think it's actually one of his greatest performances in a sense because his character and, you know, the, the direction the relationship goes in, is it kind of feels to me like he's, he knows that there's a certain perception of Clint Eastwood, the performer, the macho man. And yeah. I, th- I think he's subverting that quite nicely here. And I think it's a really interesting performance. Yeah, I think that's quite a nice point to jump into sort of production notes to kind of give a bit more colour to where he is at at this particular point, particularly as a director. Um, for those that don't know, The Bridges of Mountain County is based off a best-selling novel from 1992 by Robert James Waller. Uh, the novel, which is presented as a novelization of a true story but is entirely fictional, is one of the best-selling books of the 20th century with over 60 million copies sold worldwide. So perhaps a film was inevitable. 
And so inevitable, in fact, that Steven Spielberg and Amblin bought the rights to it in late 1991 for the small price of $25,000 <laughs> right before it was published. Uh, so they clearly saw the um, potential in, in its manuscript. And with that hunch more than proving to be true, as by the time the film had come out uh, later in uh, 1995, uh, it had already sold over 10 million copies on its way to that uh, record-breaking run uh, of, sale, of sales. Uh, it was Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy uh, largely driving it on the Amblin side of things for this one. And Spielberg first asked Sidney Pollack to direct it. Of course, a uh, very, very well-respected and celebrated filmmaker behind the lights of Out of Africa and Tootsie. Uh, and he got his Out of Africa writer, Kurt Lutke, to draft the first version of the adaptation before then bowing out. And it was around this time that Robert Rep- Robert Repford's name was kind of circling around this project. It is not someone that's very, it's not a difficult thing to also imagine it with Robert Repford. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Um, it was at this point that Ronald Bass, who had recently won an Oscar for his script for Rayman, was brought in by Kennedy and Spielberg to take a crack at the script. But they were once again unsatisfied. Uh, th- this is a bit of a run of some writers, but it's not quite to the extent of the seven writers working on the Flintstones. As we <laughs> <laughs> and I recently heard in an interview with Tony Kushner that he was one of the writers brought in to do a pass on the Flintstones. Back You're in the kidding. <laughs> one, of the, one of the 35. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, it was the third draft by Richard. I have, I've been trying to pronounce his surname all day. La Grevenesse. <laughs> That's a good effort, man. <laughs> the writer behind uh, Alfonso Cuaron's A Little Princess and Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King. Uh, it was his draft that stuck and was liked so much by Spielberg that the filmmaker himself considered making Bridges his next film after Schindler's List. Um, it was also around this time that one Mr. Clint Eastwood joined a production, originally just uh, as uh, Robert Kincaid to take on the lead role. Um, and Eastwood... Likewise to Spielberg, really liked that uh, Le Gravenesse script, presented the story from Francesca's point of view, um, and it was also on Spielberg's request that the, in- the framing device be introduced uh, of having Francesca's children discover and read her diaries. Um, when so is Spielberg... that not in the book? It's not in the book, no. Oh, okay, it's interesting. Mm. Um, when Spielberg decided not to direct it, he tapped Bruce Beresford, um, the Australian filmmaker behind Driving Miss Daisy, to uh, take the reins. Uh, Beresford, keen to have his own stamp on the screenplay, invited his Daisy screenwriter, Alfred Hurry, to draft another version. But Warner Brothers, Spielberg and Eastwood all preferred the earlier draft, leading to Beresford dropping out. And then I'm assuming Eastwood just saying, fuck it, I'll just direct it. (laughs) (laughs) Feels like the kind of thing he'd say, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Fine, I'll do it myself. (laughs) Now, of course, as we've discussed, Eastwood is a man who really needs no introduction. One of the biggest Hollywood names of the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, Of course, uh, breaking through on TV originally in his role in Rawhide, which I've never seen an episode of, but I know the theme tune very well, thanks to the Blues Brothers. Uh, <laughs> and also uh, Five Goes West. It goes Five Goes West. <laughs> uh, before cementing his tough and gritty screen persona in their much celebrated collaborations with Sergio Leone and their landmarks of the spaghetti western subgenre with the Dollars trilogy throughout the 1960s. 
It's Clint uh, Eastwood's DNA in Rick Dalton in um, Tarantino's mm. uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, isn't there? Bit of there, yeah. Bit McQueen and Eastwood cocktail there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was he would go on to secure, like, really cement himself as the iconic figure that he is throughout the seventies, particularly with uh, Dirty Harry and its subsequent sequels. And it, it was also in the nineteen seventies that he first began to to direct, taking inspiration from his mentors like Leone and Dirty Harry's Don Siegel. And Siegel was very much a man who was in that efficient working model. So I imagine a lot of that kind of practice of getting it done, getting it done quickly came from um, kind of learning under Siegel's uh, mentorship. Um, Eastwood's own directorial debut was the psychological thriller Play Misty for Me. Um, it's that a film you guys are familiar with at all? Because again, that's one that I often forget about in the Eastwood conversation, mm-hmm. but it is very good. <laughs> yeah, I, must, I must confess, I've never seen it. I've heard no, lots likewise. of lovely things about it, but I've never mm. seen it. <clears throat> it's very good. And again, it's I find it so interesting that the first film that he decides to direct is a psychological thriller. And it's, it's just something that you'd think, because his next film would be um, High Plains Drifters as mm-hmm. director, which again, feels a bit more in what you'd expect of him at, uh, yeah. at this point. But then he follows that up with the romantic drama Breezy. So he's, he quickly established himself as this filmmaker who likes to change lanes and isn't beholden to a specific genre, despite having much of this attachment to particularly the Western or the action genre. Um, throughout the 1980s, he had a rather mixed filmography, both in front of and behind the camera, um, as well as a brief stint as mayor of Carmel-by-the-Sea in California. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there were certainly hits with the likes of Firefox, Pell Rider, and Heartbreak Ridge, but, but towards the end of the 80s, it looked as though his star was starting to wane um, with the likes of the mixed critical and commercial reception of the fifth and final Dirty Harry movie, The Deadpool, uh, the muted commercial reception of his otherwise highly praised music biopic Bird, and the commercial and critical car crash of Pink Cadillac in 1989. I just can't so, imagine why anybody <laughs> would... would um look down on the Deadpool creatively <laughs> with the stunning Guns N' Roses cameo that that film features. <laughs> it's a welcome to the jungle in that movie. It is. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very much... Uh, this song's featuring, I've got an idea. Let's, <laughs> let's have Slash standing awkwardly on the dock. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it was a, it was a little bit kind of um, I don't know if you guys have seen the Deadpool, but it was a little bit um, latter day Roger Moore Bond for me. Right, um, right, right. It was, right, it was right. very much like Clint's getting a little older for that role, and yeah, it was it was <laughs> yeah. it was a little bit hammy compared to the others. I am I, I for, I've only ever seen the first Dirty Harry movie. Yeah, like same, doing yeah. this kind of research has maybe gone like. Oh, didn't, for one, I didn't know there was five of them. I thought there was only about three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, it's a franchise. I'm like, I might tip that off because it feels like it might appeal to me. <laughs> yeah, the first, the second one, like I've not seen them in, in years and I can't even remember. Is what, it Magnum Force, the second one? I think so, yeah. I can't even remember what order they really go in now. But I, I remember <laughs> I remember the second one being really quite unexpectedly good. And the third one was solid. And then I think the last two weren't very good. Certainly the last mm. one was was what it was. Would be a nice way perhaps to put it. <laughs> <laughs> it's what it is. <laughs> yeah. But uh so it, at that the start of the nineties then it seemed 
his career did seem to be kind of following this pattern of having films that weren't really particularly seen. Um, there was a lot, you kicked off the 90s with two films that were a bit of a box office duds um, White Hunter, Black Heart, and The Rookie, um, the former of which I watched for the first time a couple of weeks ago and really liked it. <laughs> I'm still yet to see the rookie with Charlie Sheen. But <laughs> I, I think I think the rookie is one I might have from the magazine right. subscription. <laughs> and I don't remember much about it. So take take from that what you might. Hmm. I highly recommend <laughs> White Hunter Black Heart. It's uh, loosely based on the making of the African Queen and Eastwood plays like a John Huston type oh, okay. filmmaker. And uh, it's really weird him trying to get into like the speech patterns of John Huston. It, it's, it doesn't quite work initially, but you kind of ease <laughs> into it. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, but everything turned around for Eastwood in 1992 with the release of Unforgiven, the film largely regarded as his finest work as both actor and director, winning him the Oscars for Best Director and Best Picture, as well as proving to be a hit at the box office. He then followed that up with two more commercial successes, both in front of and behind of the camera, with 1993's In the Line of Fire and A Perfect World. So, And this is very much at the point where he's attached to Bridges of Madison County. So he's a man enjoying something of a career reinvigoration when mm-hmm. Bridges comes along. Um, so again, I don't think it really was much of a, a push to imagine him directing it at the, at this point in his career where he is where he's hot shit again um <laughs> uh, next came the challenge of casting his co-star in the key role of francesca uh the author uh waller had championed isabella rossellini to play uh, yeah. francesca that makes a lot which of makes sense. a lot of sense yeah, yeah. <laughs> um other names considered apparently included angelica houston glenn close jessica lang hmm. mary mcdonnell Cher. And Susan Sarandon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and despite Spielberg's initial reluctance, um, Street was cast after Eastwood had very much been pushing for her from pretty much. Why day was one Spielberg reluctant? I think it was slightly to do with um, the age. I, I know a lot of the producers originally wanted someone a bit younger. Um, oh, younger? For, yeah, a bit younger Christ. for the role. Interesting. Because um, she's 19 be... years between them as it is. Yeah, she's. In of what mid forties here? Yeah, yeah. Like say, 46, and he's 47. sixty. Yeah, early sixties. I think isn't he's mid sixties. I looked at because he was born in nineteen thirty, so he's about 60, <laughs> 64, 65 for this. Jeez, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. They both look fantastic. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Um, yeah, um, I mean, it's a wonderful piece of casting in the end, though, isn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, again, she's someone who needs no introduction. Is this now? Regarded? Is this yes. our first Meryl Streep? This is our first Meryl Streep, yes. Okay. Yes. It's a um, big moment, guys. It's a big Ooh. moment. <laughs> <laughs> Have we only got one more? What's the is other the one? Post, the, the Post. I oh, think the Post. That's the I... <laughs> God. Well, yeah, enjoy while she's here then, guys. Yeah, enjoy <laughs> while she's here. We've got a, a fair gap. <laughs> uh, but she she was already well established as the acting titan that uh, hmm. she's still regarded as to this day, having already won two Oscars. Uh, for Kramer versus Kramer and Sophie's Choice, and also had an additional seven no- nominations under her belt by the time Bridges came along. Oh, so- <laughs> that's amazing, unbelievable, and it's only gained more since. <laughs> <laughs> My yeah. favorite is a nom food. Was it Julie and Julia? 
Julie and Juliet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I once, um, very, many years ago, when I first started running in film and TV, mm. I did um, a couple of days as a, a marshal on The Iron Lady. <gasps> That's right, ah. you did. Yeah, and I was basically just keeping an eye on the green rooms. And she came in and asked me where her green room was. She was very polite, very nice. And I said, mm. oh, it's just there. And she said, thank you. But she's a method actress. Oh. So <laughs> I had that entire conversation with Meryl Streep. Well, I'd say entire, you know, we didn't talk for more than 10 seconds. But I was talking to... <laughs> Meryl Streep as Thatcher, so it's like yeah. as a as a like a northerner. I was like, this is very. I, I don't know what to do. I didn't know how to approach <laughs> how the situation. Yeah, this? I, I was just sort of stood there in a sort of bit of a trance for five seconds afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Very odd experience. I feel, I feel like I should kick you. <laughs> exactly. It's you know. I'm gonna give you the wrong direction. <laughs> just keep walking. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yes, despite Spielberg's initial reluctance, I'd pick again. This is a bit of a no-brainer when you've got Meryl Streep saying she's interested, and your star and director being like, "No, only her. You're not really going to argue." <laughs> to... <laughs> uh, the film is shot on location in Madison County, Iowa, including the town of Winteris, Winterset, and in the Dallas County town of Ad Ad Adel, uh, with the shoot taking 42 days, wrapping on November 1st, 1994. Ten days ahead of schedule. That's very <laughs> Clint, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> also the day of my second birthday. <laughs> uh, with the film being shot in sequence from Francesca's perspective, as Eastwood deemed it was very important to work that way, we were two people getting to know each other in real time. <laughs> on screen and as the characters. <laughs> Again, speaks to a sensitivity as a filmmaker that I've been oh, yeah. kind of alluding to. Um, doesn't always get considered with his work. But um, the farmhouse used in the movie had been uh, abandoned for 30 years and was completely restored by production designer uh, Janine Opperwall and her art directors Charles William Breen and William Arnold. But sadly, it burnt down in 2003 after an act of arson, as did the Cedar Bridge, which is the very much the central border oh, no. uh, bridge in that the same sucks. year as well. So that's yeah. not there anymore. Someone really hates this movie. Yeah, maybe <laughs> it's Isabella Rossellini. Ah. So teach yeah, you yeah, for yeah. not casting me. Make Meryl do an, Amer- an Italian accent, will you? Yeah. <laughs> I was so pleased when when she said she was Italian because I couldn't figure out that accent for the first uh, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the the film was uh, released theatrically on June second, nineteen ninety five, which was my dad's thirty ninth birthday. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it went on to gross $10.5 million in its opening weekend, ranking number two in the US box office, just behind Casper, <laughs> which was still performing well in its holdover second week. <laughs> Good week which, for uh, Amblin. Yeah, very Indeed. strong um, week for Amblin, right? <laughs> which also does feature Eastwood in a cameo appearance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Weirdly, it was number one at the Japanese box office for nine consecutive weeks. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. Grossing over $35 million in Japan alone. Uh, at the end of its run, the film had grossed $71.5 million in the United States and $110.5 million overseas for a worldwide total 
of 182 million. So very much still um, in this pattern of Eastwood movies being good, substantial mm. hits. That is very, very uh, healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Off of a budget of 22 million as well. So some some nice returns there for the mm. Bridges of Madison County. Yeah. I think this is um, kind of the time, isn't it, around this point from Unforgiven onwards where it has this little mm-hmm. second run, as you say. And it kind yeah. of it kind of almost becomes, even in the films that he's not necessarily a lead in that he's directing, the Clint Eastwood film thing becomes a thing around mm-hmm. this point. You know, it's it's kind of an Absolutely. attraction of itself. Um, uh, the film was also very critically well received. <laughs> I found Janet Maslin's quote quite funny because she <laughs> clearly did not like the book at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Eastwood, director, alchemist, has transformed the bridges of Madison County into something <laughs> bearable. No, something even better. <laughs> Limited by the vap- vapidity of this material while he trims his excesses with the requisite ma- with his ma- requisite machete, Mr. Eastwood locates a moving love story amongst the heart of Mr. Waller's self-congratulatory overkill. <laughs> Goodness. That is uh, really, really gone in quite hard there. Yeah. Really tickled me. <laughs> uh, despite this, and the fact that it has like, this kind of award pedigree around it, the film was only nominated for one Oscar, and that was for another, another nomination for one Meryl Streep. It was not the last adaptation of the novel as it was turned into a Broadway musical by Jason Robert Brown that ran for a limited time in 2014. Despite this limited run and not uh, not a very strong box office performance, it won two Tony Awards in, uh, that year for Best Original Score and Best, Best Orchestrations. So now we wait and see if much like The Colour Purple will get a musical remake from Amblin of the Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny to imagine a film that's so tender and so understated being chosen to be adapted as a Broadway musical. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently it's very folk country driven. Right, right. You can right. imagine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it would kind of have to be, wouldn't it? It'd be weird if it was like, you know, make them laugh. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to be I'm not going to apologize for no, who I am and I'm not going to be made to feel like I've done something no, wrong you're not here. going to be made to feel anything period because you have carved out this little part for yourself in the world where you get to be a voyeur and a hermit and a, and a lover whenever you feel like it and the rest of us are supposed to feel incredibly grateful for this brief moment that you touched up go to hell it isn't human not to be lonely and it isn't human not to be afraid you're a hypocrite and you're a phony. I don't want to need you. What? Because I can't have you. What difference does that make? Now, I think this brings us to a point where we can discuss a bit more openly about how we re- really felt about the film and particularly coming, kind of coming into it with Eastwood in mind and Amblin mm. in mind. Um I, I think from what we've been saying before, I don't think it will come as a surprise to too many listeners that, and I'm sure I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think we all were quite quite taken by uh, this movie. And I, I watched it, I only watched it this morning for the very first time. And similarly to um, watching White Hunter Black Heart, I was surprised by the kind of more self-reflective and quite introspective nature mm. of the filmmaking behind it, where it feels like a very calm 
collected hand on the wheel, yeah. um, which just gives space for performance to breathe. And particularly both Streep and Eastwood, um, allowing that chemistry to form and come to the, really come to the, the fore. And both of them doing stellar work. And I was like, I was very much like, this isn't, and to speak on your point, Josh, this isn't the milky cup of tea that I thought it was going mm. to be. It was, it was, it was, it was quite a heady brew and it was quite <laughs> affecting. <laughs> it was a proper Yorkshire tea that's been <laughs> sitting there for about five minutes. Dare I say, possibly room. Yorkshire gold? Who knows? Oh, <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> so, Rob, what, what were your thoughts upon revisiting this again? Uh, yeah, well, this is, I'm in a slightly different position to you guys. Um, I mean, I watched it again this morning, um, just because generally whenever I cover a film on a podcast, I like to leave it as late as I can. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is, I think, overall, this is the third time I've seen it over, I guess, like a 16-year period. I can't remember. It's maybe been 10 years or so since I last saw it. And what struck me this time is the nuance of the performance from from both of them in particular um especially especially Meryl Streep um you know i think the, the biggest tribute i can pay to her performance in a sense is that at no point was i jarred by her italian accent mm-hmm. you know i just, she sold me on her being italian and i questioned it no further um and i think also that the real emotional hits especially the, the sort of final act hold hold up you know uh, it was it affected me as it did the previous two viewings you know and it's um like I, said, I think it's just a wonderfully unique take on the nature of of love in a way mm, yeah mm-hmm. i think uh, there was a point you made earlier uh in response to my statement about uh, my prejudice against what, what I the genre that I thought this film belonged to, yeah. and you mentioned that um, I think films speak to where you are at your life at different points in your life, and what might attract you when you're younger, it might change by the time you get a little bit older. And certainly for me, right now, I turn as I am want to remind everyone on the podcast, I turned thirty a few uh, a month and a bit ago now. And I'm very Welcome, much, congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm under no illusions that I'm over any hill. I'm, I'm still a, a young man for all intents and purposes, but I, I do um, do find myself thinking about paths not taken and, uh, you know, dreams not fulfilled or, or maybe dreams not pursued to the, the fullest ability. So this film really, really, it, it visualizes that and it makes palpable that sensation, but there's some really, really gorgeous little... Um, homilies that the characters say that that speak to that which just they walk this amazing line of being almost sort of um live laugh love you know those signs that your mum has on the kitchen wall they they run the risk of being that but in in the mouths of these performances and in the context of this film and the tonal um the the atmosphere that it conjures up they really really hit like a sledgehammer and yeah. I, I just found this movie, I found this movie palpably affecting. Like it, it, it was like treacle in my throat. I could feel this movie viscously. I, I just was bowled over by this thing. Yeah, truly, truly incredible. It's it's even from quite, quite from the off because it. I I do think the, the framing device does work 
particularly well more more so in the opening moments where it does feel like you're like I always always I'm quite fascinated by that idea of like the lives your parents have led um when you're not around or what before you were around or even when you are around and the the question of how much you fully know this person who has to play a certain role in your life and the way the framing device initially is used is that kind of the build-up of mystery where they're all, they're all a bit perplexed by um the request that is in her will to be cremated and then uncovering these little items that lead further down a path it has this weird kind of and it's something that i think sticks with the film particularly into its final moments as well it gives it an almost it's quite like an ethereal feel of um like lives being led uh, out of the frame and it just it, there's a nice sense of mystery that's built up towards as we then go into the flashbacks and Meryl Street takes center stage um beyond that that I found the framing device a, a, a little annoying when it like kind of cut back in sometimes I was yeah. like no yeah, no yeah. way <laughs> I don't want to see Michael again he's an arsehole yeah you just you just didn't yeah I think it's uh, yeah that's I guess that's the only only thing that that you can kind of speak as a detriment in the sense mm. is that it does a couple of those cutbacks especially the very very short ones mm-hmm. just throw you out just ever so slightly um yeah I, I, I would yeah. agree wholeheartedly. Mm. I do think it made me. I, I mean, this is probably there are countless examples better than this, I'm sure. But it did make me think of Titanic, the framing device. Insofar as you do have, like, you see Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood in photographs and in clippings during the opening framing device. Before you see them embodying their characters, and you you see um, you hear extracts of letters being read out, and you hear snippets of their story in the build-up to actually fully flashing back. And much like in Titanic, when you get teasers for what's going to happen, obviously you know mm. ultimately what happens in Titanic, but <laughs> you, you do get teasers as to what you're going to see during the flashbacks. And it, it yeah. does give it this sort of mythic quality. Yeah, for Both sure. insofar as um, it's the kids finding out that their mother was a completely different person to the one that they saw and that they knew during her life, but also in, in what it means to, um, to Francesca. And I think... I don't want to speak for all of us, but I, I will venture to say that I'm sure we've all had relationships, romantic or platonic, in our lives that were maybe short-lived, but very, very intensely felt in the moment. Mm. And the older you get, the more distance goes between you and that moment, the more mythical it feels to you because yeah. you, you you weren't able to um, to sustain it or keep it going. And so you, you place a lot of import on that. And again, it speaks to questions of the great what could have been and the paths that could have been taken and yeah mm-hmm. i think i i so yeah long way of saying that i do i like the the importance that the um framing device gives to the central st- uh, love story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what do you guys make of the um because this is very much the sort of story that I will very much hinge on your uh two stars and particularly how they play against each other how do you how do, how do you rate the chemistry between uh streep and eastwood in this I thought it was a it was a bit of a slow builder for me in a sense. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and this maybe speaks to the, the the Eastwood quote that you mentioned earlier about them shooting it in narrative order and they're they're kind of getting to know each other as they go. I think there was a a slight awkward, not maybe not awkwardness, but there was a slight 
not a lack of chemistry, almost like a crack in the chemistry in the in the sort of mm. initial sequences, particularly when they're driving to the bridge. It's kind of it does have that, and and maybe it's something that works in a way that I've not thought or read it. There is an awkwardness there, and I perhaps it's an awkwardness of of her getting into the car with this strange guy and it's something that's out of character, but it, it kind of also feels like there's a slight underpinning of an awkwardness between their their chemistry on screen. Um, but it, I think it's almost like as the film goes, it it does reach a crescendo. And I think that's maybe mm-hmm. a, a real a real positive to Eastwood shooting it, you know, in narrative order, in that they are as as, as artists going on the journey that the characters are. Um, so yeah, I guess that's my meandering way of saying <laughs> that it kind of. I thought that, that there was a couple of little issues at the start, but it soon it soon leveled out. Yeah, how about yourself, Josh? Yeah, I, I think I think I was in pretty early because they're, they're both very charismatic on their own terms, and as soon as Clint comes into the frame, he's so immediately low key, almost laconic, charming, and uh, it's nice seeing them, seeing the characters and, and and the actors feel each other out in that in those early scenes together. And mm-hmm. it gets to a point where it does feel like two, two magnets that you're trying to keep apart for as long as you can, but you know that there's an in- inevitable fusing yeah. that's going to happen. And uh, and by the time we get to that scene, oh man, the the, the gestures in this movie, the gestures mm. that they both share, the tiniest <coughs> little things, uh, the one that, that got me, it, 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 it caught in my throat and I had to go, oh man, just give me a second. When um, they're in, I think he's back for the second night having dinner. She's just put on her dress and the phone rings and I forget yeah. who it, I think I think it's the I think it's a neighbour maybe. Maybe it's that neighbour that comes around later on. And she just puts her hand on his shoulder while she's talking and he puts his hand on her hand and mm. there's such a tenderness to that. And then that's what becomes that slow dance around the kitchen. Yeah. And then you have their two faces inching closer and closer together and he says something like, um, uh, what does he say now? I hand da, 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 da. Uh, if you want me to stop, tell me now. And yeah, and that's the, your point of re- no return moment, really, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. and then and just, the quiet, the, unspoken yeah. nature of it mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And it comes out to fruition. And the, the way that kiss is done, it, it's there's such a mm. there's something so physical and tangible between those two actors. And it's I, it's immediately one of my all time favorite movie kisses. It's, it was <laughs> yeah. such a gorgeous, expressive bit of acting between yeah. them both. It's yeah, but that done. yeah, yeah. So it completely sold me. And even when it does become more overtly melodramatic at the end, when he he leaves the barn and she's like retching because she's crying so much, that could so easily be, oh, fuck off with this nonsense. But because you because those two convince you so much of what they have, I really was moved hugely. Yeah. Yeah. By yeah. That. And I think um, the, the thing that I really noticed watching it this time was the importance and the sort of very clever way the sort of slight threat is weaved into the narrative mm. with the little sequence with the, I didn't quite catch the character's name, apologies, but the lady in the town who's kind of been ostracised. Mm, um, yeah. And when she's in the cafe with, 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 with Clint Eastwood and it sort of refers us back a couple of times to that little narrative and it's explained that, you know, she's been ostracised because she's been accused of doing something improper in her marriage and, mm. you know, that kind And I think when Clint Eastwood finds out about that, he kind of recoils a bit. And it's not a, a traditional threat like you get in, you know, 
the holiday or whatever when someone catches someone kissing someone else or finds out something about their past you know it's kind of it's, it's much yeah. more subtle than that but i think mm. it's 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 really it's a nice way to establish that there are stakes here as well you yeah. know this is mm-hmm. she has a family she has kids and you know it's a time well not so much a time but a, a place where any kind of affairs are a scandal really in small yeah. town america yeah. at this point I love too yeah. that her husband's not a jerk. He he's a perfectly nice guy. He's just completely unexciting and and offers nothing. Mm. Yeah, you're just not the guy. Yeah, yeah, just not the guy. Nice guy, not the guy. And yeah. it's like that's kind of play, like again talking on the these sort of gestures as well. Um, I, I think that's largely born out of Meryl Streep's performance because even mm. from like quite early on when it's, I mean that kitchen dinner table with the uh, yellow. Uh, vinyl chairs is a very feels like a very big uh, focus point and quite like a mm. something so mundane is actually quite like so many sig- huge significant moments happen around this very uh, 60s dining table yeah <laughs> no, that's what it is. It's, um, it's used really well and it's established as well at the start with you know that it tells you everything you need to know about her life and the dynamic with the family where she's serving the dinner and you know, she goes yeah. to sit down and realise that, that she hasn't got something that her husband likes out of the fridge, so she gets up again and yeah. puts it on the table. It's very, you know, it, yeah, that table is vitally important. Yeah. And there's that great bit where in that opening scene, in the opening scene of the flashback when the camera holds on her face, her daughter's changed the radio from opera to yeah. doo-wop, and it starts with the Shangri-Las, and then, it, uh, then Baby I'm Yours comes on, and the camera just holds Meryl's face, and you can see so many cogs turning and so many... Is things I really might say everything yeah yeah, yeah yeah <laughs> and that song i'm such a sucker for that song anyway yeah <laughs> um, no, i but, think it's interesting where a lot that again that dining table is used for again big moments in their relationship and it's it's i found it very interesting when it does start building to the end of the four days and they um have that dinner on the dining table and it's candlelit <laughs> and they have a very frank discussion about what could possibly happen. And it's, I found it so interesting that they shift it to that room for that moment. And we enter on them completely silent where Mm. we've seen them in this other space in the home. That is much more the kind of symbol of activity and the connectedness of um, the family and what she kind of does stand to lose. If she does leave the conversation about actually about leaving is happening in this other quieter room almost as if the other the other space can't hear it and it has to be <laughs> kept away from that area and hashed out elsewhere in the home um it's fascinating that they like i always find with like films like this that are so limited in location and mm. how pivotal places within like the home like this end up being in moments like that mm. and i'm so sad the house burned down oh, <laughs> yeah. it's terrible <laughs> yeah there is some really nice clean simple but effective blocking and and mm. framings like you have there's one shot that's stuck in my head it might be the same night i think it's when they're dancing in the kitchen or maybe it's just before that when he's telling anecdotes and she's doing that famous meryl streep laugh which she's so good at doing um and you have the camera is positioned in the the dining room and you can see the dining room in the foreground of the shot and it's all in shadows the lights are off in that room then in the middle of the frame further back in the depth of the field you have the kitchen and the light is on and that's where all the life is happening right now and there mm-hmm. is such a division in her 
emotional space with relation to the house. Like that's where her that's that's what exists for her right now. The light is there, and uh, it. I don't think I, I wouldn't have again not to be detrimental towards Eastwood as a filmmaker, but I wouldn't have pegged him as somebody who was particularly visually expressive. But there are some very nice, clean, mm. simple visual shortcuts to mental states and thematic ideas. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, there's some lovely little sort of cuts and moments that kind of explain what it is about Eastwood's character that makes him so appealing mm. to her versus her husband, like going back to the, the sequence at the start where the family are eating and you compare that to the scene where um, I think it's the first night when she invites Clint Eastwood's character to come in for dinner and he says, can I do anything to help? And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's that, mm-hmm. you know, and her reaction to something as simple as, you know, him yeah. Cutting carrots is it's just such a stark contrast to, to her previous yeah. life. It's really nicely done. Men cook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do. <laughs> do you want a beer? <laughs> it's like a lovely afternoon. I want to hang out with him. That's yeah. a lovely Sounds afternoon. Sounds great, doesn't it? Shoot some photos of him, make some food, drink a beer, have some brandy, then bathe in his shower water. Yeah. Again, I, it, it speaks to that. <laughs> 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 it speaks to the kind of like um i think to a point you were saying earlier um about how it does deal with these this kind of romance of a bit more consideration and a bit more um clear-mindedness and like yes it's about passion but it's also about people being very careful with how that passion elevates and the the all these little moments where they could stop it and say like um she doesn't invite him to dinner say that that's a very key turning point as well when she invites mm. him to dinner that yeah. first night um the decision to write that letter and put it that again all these decisions which are all these moments which are points where you could just turn around and ignore it and move on and there's such a good elevation of that but also a consideration from the characters uh, as you were saying um once he sees i think it's lucy who's the being the ostracized mm. housewife um she, the moments where they are like, mm, wait a second, and both parties have that conversation and are quite frank about it because they are aware of this attraction, but know that that if they are just going to spend more time in each other's company, it is going to end up in only one inevitable place. And it's about that kind of consideration of both acknowledging where it is going to go and still mm. taking that leap, yeah. Um, which the film does in a very again that kind of mannered gentle approach mm. which is so much more emotionally intelligent than i would again yeah. would have immediately given this film credit for on the surface you get the sense in in every every time they make one of those decisions that you know is a, a turning point or a point of no return you do get the sense that part of them somewhere is hoping the other one gives them an out because that they're, they're maybe not strong enough to deny themselves it themselves but if the other person says no to the offer then whew, okay Cool, you've saved me. But of course, that isn't going to happen because there is something so vivid between them. It was a really, really emotionally smart line. Mm-hmm. There's there's one part in particular I'd like to get you guys' thoughts on, it, and it is on this kind of theme of uh, the moment to take the leap. And it's the, one of the most, like, the most devastating moments of the whole thing because we, we've had it where the husband's return, the children have returned, you think mm-hmm. that's it, but then we get this kind of epilogue moment oh, where man. he is standing in the rain and then 
is in the car in front and waits at the light and there's just that so it's so drawn out mm. for such devastating effect of her hand on the car car door handle and this is the final moment where she might take one of these leaps that would be so it would be so kind of cataclysmic to everything in um in her life and it's it, the kind of desperation and devastation and that kind of prolonged holding on the hand is like really drives home the mm. how much weight this film has conjured over its runtime what uh, what are your kind of impressions on that epilogue and that last moment to take that leap rob um it reminded me i mean it was it was just i was you know that's when the tears came um <laughs> it was it's just so beautifully done but so devastating at the same time you know and just the moment where like you say when she's when she's holding onto the handle and, it, and they're waiting for a light you know the lights change it almost it almost felt a bit like almost like one of the spaghetti western standoffs almost mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the, the time that it takes over it and just that moment when he he turns in the opposite direction and they go straight on is yeah it's it's devastating but beautiful at the same time you know and it's i think it's it's, it's the thing i love most about this film is there's it's the honesty about romance and mm-hmm. you know not not you don't always walk off into the sunset with the person you're meant to be with in that situation unfortunately you know things life is more complex than that and i think i think that's that's the thing overall that this film and this scene kind of encapsulates is is the complexity of life and complexity of those those relationships yeah beautifully done and i think the weather adds to it mm-hmm. you know yeah oh there's so much rain yeah. <laughs> yeah. you get that kind of like steamy condensation in the car as well where everything just feels so much more frantic because of it <laughs> yeah 100 percent such it's a well-directed sequence. It's a romantic thriller moment. It's like it is a thriller mm. set piece of it, essentially, and all non-verbal, and it's all entirely gestural, and it does make you appreciate what uh, an intuitive, smart filmmaker Eastwood is. <coughs> yeah, and you know, um, credit where credit's due to whomever, because I don't have the credits in front of me. I'm ashamed to say, but whomever edited this film. Um, you know, mm, he's done some really Joel, Joel Cox, right? Regulars, <laughs> right? You know, the the some of the edit in this is really superb. Yeah, I mean, it, again, these similar sort of person. I always like Joel Cox is someone I hold in like the same regard as uh, your Michael Carnes when it comes to great editors of this kind of particular era. And I, I'm pretty sure he's worked on essentially every Eastwood film that he's directed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't surprise Certainly me. Certainly from this point on. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that I was quite surprised by and that I wanted to, to hear your guys' thoughts on was the... There's a scene that I sort of jokingly alluded to when Meryl Streep is in the bath and she's watching the water drip from the shower that um, Clint Eastwood has just used and talks about the feeling of bathing in an area where the water has just touched his body and how intensely erotic that felt. And uh, I think this film really, like, the, the, the carnality of this film, it's quite an erotic movie. It's not erotic in an explicit way, but it's erotic in the way something like In the Mood for Love is or Portrait of a Lady on Fire in that it really does, it, it visualizes and, again, makes you feel that intense longing both 
romantically and uh, intellectually and emotionally, but also physically and carnally, yeah. really get that sense of you want this person and need this person. And uh, I enjoy seeing that. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do. And they really, really do it without over-egging it. I think it's a really yeah. effective. I wonder what you guys thought about like the erotic nature of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, and I think it's got a, a different it's got a different feeling of eroticism than than I've come across a lot. And I think again, I think it's it has something to do with the age of these characters, in that you feel like mm. you know they've lived life, and there's there is a scene I think where they have the argument where. Um, she basically implies that Clint Eastwood might have done this in any city around the world with other housewives, yeah. you know, and she's mm. obviously been married. I mean, their kids are, are quite old, so you can just safely assume she's been married for 20 years, you know, and they've lived sexual lives that, for 20-plus years, and this is, I think, for her to to feel that carnal intensity, it, it gives it a, a different wrinkle, I think, Mm. Yeah, I feel like I, I I always find these kind of romances like they're the ones I always particularly respond to the kind of doomed romance mm. uh, approach. And I, I, this has very much been said for the book as well. It's very very brief encounter sort of uh, vibe, isn't it? And yeah. that sense of and again, it, it rides on chemistry quite a lot of mm. that like, that pang of mm. um, wanting to kind of pursue the heart, but having to having to have that sense of recognizing responsibility is yeah yeah absolutely the responsibilities you have and the um that that struggle to want to do something for yourself but knowing it's just uh so it would be it, it would be so disastrous for yeah every other person that, and and again in this case it as you said that her husband is someone that she doesn't dislike mm. and doesn't and she loves him and cares for him um, but it, again, it's not that that feeling that can, he, it's something that he mm. can't give her. And again, that when you are, then put it into a position where these two people are by themselves for four days, it does drive that. Again, having it, it's something that Portrait of a Lady in Fire does as well, where it is the finite window mm-hmm. of time that they have, and that yeah, that drives the passion of it a, yeah. a, a lot. I think having that having a time frame. Yeah, uh, particularly. Um, again, I am a, a, I'm a bit of a sucker for any kind of <laughs> romance movie like that. <laughs> it's yeah. funny as well that this came out the same year as the other masterpiece of um, of limited window relationships before Sunrise. Casper. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, okay, Josh. It's clearly Casper. <laughs> One of three masterpieces of uh, limited. <laughs> but before Sunrise, in 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 its broader romantic thematic strokes. Is doing mm-hmm. similar things to this, obviously at a much younger end of the scale, and yeah. the subsequent poster as well, sequels. Yeah, yeah, it is actually, <laughs> and the sequels to that film give shading that this film obviously is, isn't able to delve into with as much depth. But I'm mm. I'm fully with you, man. I, I'm a this kind of thing. Uh, there's that, that that scene in the jazz bar when Clint East, when, when she asks mm. um, him about his family, and he says, "I can't do this. I can't." fit a lifetime into a four days or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just the, the frankness, it's the awareness that 
the more I get into this, I, I need you and I want you, but I know the more I get into this with you right now, the more it's going to hurt. And they, they even say things to that effect. Um, yeah. I will start to blame loving you for how much it hurts. And, you it's know, like, once you leave, I, I'm going to have to sit here for the rest of my life wondering what happened to me, if anything at all. And Yeah. yeah. And even his justification is something like... I, <laughs> One, I don't want to need you because I yeah. can't have you. Yeah, like yeah, so yeah. Sort of, totally. It's a lot. It's all very loaded dialogue. It like is. That, which, yeah. it's, it's, but it, it works, really, isn't it? Really beautiful dialogue. Yeah. It's it's... Like, it really it makes you kind of go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and there's that bit when she says, I was, I think in, in voiceover, I'm assuming the letters that her kids are reading, she says, I was acting like another woman. Yeah, I was mm. more myself than ever before. And it is that thing of, even though it's only four days, she meets this man who gets her on a molecular level. And makes her see herself in the way that she has always wanted to see herself and almost realizes her, you know, intellectual, mm. emotional potential in a way that her husband, lovely though he might be, he just fundamentally isn't able to do so. Yeah. yeah and so. I think it's, it's really nice as well, the way that the film kind of investigates that with their children and, and mm. the arc mm. and, and the journey that they go on looking back through the letters. And, you know, at the end, there's those couple of nice sequences where, you know, her son, engages with his wife and you know tells her you know other things he wants to do to make her happy and and her daughter and i think this is kind of shown throughout the film is that she's kind of unhappy in her marriage but she she was at the start she's leaning towards like that's just the way life is you yeah. know you work through it or or whatever and i think this engaging with this side of her mother that she didn't know was there and seeing the pain that she went through you know takes her on a really interesting journey as well i think mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, you bring it, Robert. What did you guys think of the performances by the actors who play the elder children? They're the weaker part. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was. I was particularly glad that her son's wife wasn't in it very much. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, she's got <laughs> a couple of bum comedy notes that she's responsible for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I yeah, did quite this... like. Um... Sorry, go. So, yeah, but it, the problem is, it's kind of when you're comparing them to Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep, it's mm, uh, yeah. you know it's always a mountain to climb. Uh, but yeah, I think it's unfortunate that they can't like they're never like very few artists are going to get onto that level. But it mm. would have been nice if they'd have got a little closer, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought the daughter was definitely the stronger of the two. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Annie Corley. She's got a bit more of that, uh, as you were saying, that uh, slightly more interesting lesson that she takes from uh, this experience and learning of it, I think is a bit more interesting to kind of see how that would play out further down the line when she does make the decision to be like, maybe I don't need to push through. And mm-hmm. Yeah, Because I, I, she's taken the lesson from her mother that her mother probably secretly wanted for herself but had too much ties that bind yeah she's in the position now where she can still take a moment to step away and reassess and do something that is for her rather than submit to the lot she has because for what i could gather she doesn't have kids Mm. and the brother does so again there's that bit they've made their decisions based on uh what they've learned and again I, i also think it's quite nice that they them as a sibling pair seem to get quite close as a result of uh, this experience yeah. as well. Yeah, I think he's kind of he's a little bit like up, 
up until really towards the end, he's a little bit one note. I'm mad at my mum, yeah. isn't he? Oh, know? I don't want to read my mum's sex letters. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is she having sex till she's got me? Yeah, <laughs> that was a bit weird, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to be the man in her life. <laughs> so strange. Ah. Uh. Now, any anybody else have any other thoughts or feelings that they'd like to share on the bridges of Madison County? Um, well, I so I was really obviously as, as Josh knows because we had a, a bit of a chat about doing this episode. Mm. I was really excited about about talking about this film because it's a film I I like very very much. And also, what intrigued mm. me is um, Josh. You mentioned when we were chatting that you hadn't seen it. And mm-hmm. obviously, Andrew, we've not met before, so I'm, I didn't know what your background with it was. Um, but the reason I, I like, because I've done a couple of things on a couple of different podcasts that are kind of similar, where I've gone on talking about a film I like that um, that others on, on the show haven't seen before. And for me, I think it's just a joy to... It's just a joy to share people's... Because, mm-hmm. like, I, I've, I, I've known you for a fair while, Josh, and... Uh, I knew you'd like it, but it's that whole like. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't want to say too much. Uh, but yeah, it's just a, it's just a, it's just been quite, it's quite a warm experience. Um, yeah, you know, I think that's how I would sum it up. That's really yeah. nice, man. That's really, really nice. And you were right. I, I adored this. So thank you for uh, <laughs> being here to share in that, yes. sharing the love. Thank you for having me. It's it's really inspired me as well to kind of look more into these like eastward blind mm-hmm. spots, even like doing it quite close in proximity to White Hunter Black Heart and being two films. I'm going like, he's fucking great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, what other like treasure troves am I sat on not having gone through this box set that I have? <laughs> that is a chunky box set. It's like what? It's, it's a four, chunky like forty, 40 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of eastward so, yeah, movies. I think you're gonna see me uh, see. Clint Eastwood go up a lot of my stats on Letterboxd. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. so I think. <laughs> Warner Brothers presents the most passionately read love story of our time. Clint Eastwood. Meryl Streep. The Bridges of Madison County. Um, now we we only had the one tweet in for from our listeners about this movie, and that was from our pal Victor Field. Uh, thoughts, his thoughts were only like the only thing that really sticks to me going back into it was coming out and wondering why the Amblin logo doesn't appear on it. I blame Clint, he says. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't want that. I don't want that <laughs> ET on my on the end of my movie. <laughs> Who's that boy with that bicycle? Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> Cut him. Oh, that's a film you made, Stephen. Oh, I have seen it. <laughs> oh, but I'm I'm certain this is one that I'll return to with the kind of certainty yeah. that comes, but once in a lifetime. Yeah, beautiful. I think I'll definitely return to this without <laughs> a doubt. <laughs> um, now in our next episode, we'll be taking a look at uh, Biban Kidron's road trip comedy to Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Starring Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, and John Leguizamo. It's going to be a blast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen what, that, Rob? What? No, what a combination. <laughs> that's, like a, that's like a... 
It's like a Sims mod, isn't it? Of- <laughs> <laughs> they play drag queens as well. It's great. <laughs> Fantastic. That's, that sounds um, spectacular. Yeah. Uh, one i can remember watching quite young so i'm looking forward to revisiting that and see how it holds up Um, and if you do fancy watching the film along with us um and you don't have it on disc it is available to rent or buy digitally from amazon apple chili google play sky store and youtube if you've got any thoughts on Tuong Fu, please do tweet us at rambling amblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com and while you're holding your phone, do give us a rating on your podcatcher of choice. Five stars, please. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, again, just a last thing to say really is thank you so much for joining us, Rob. And where can the good listeners find you and uh, the podcast? Should they be so inclined to check you guys out? Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Um, You can find my good self uh, on Twitter, as long as it still exists when this episode comes out. (laughs) Uh, At Dancing Henry. And um, you can find my podcast on at Cinemortuary, which is also the same handle you'll find it on, on Facebook and the Instagram. Lovely stuff. Do check it out, gang. And likewise, write, like, rate, review, subscribe. It does all help us podcasters out there in the world. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, thank you as well for stopping by, dear listener. We hope you've had a very happy Christmas and wish you all the very best for the new year. We'll see you in 2023 with our episode on uh, Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Uh Till then, take care and goodbye. Much love. <laughs> <laughs>